Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same going question. through the Bokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and meticulously. Every single piece about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was really weird one to write because every time I tried to outline... The story became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with John Branch. Branch is a sports reporter at the New York Times. His book, Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports was published on June 1st by W.W. Norton. It's a collection of stories Branch wrote for the New York Times about sports and athletic activities that take place outside of the mainstream sports world. You'll recognize some of the stories in the book, like his 2013 Pulitzer Prize winning Snowfall. Others are smaller pieces. There's a story about a bowler who rolled his first perfect game and died just minutes later. There's a story about a Rubik's Cube competition and one about a girls basketball team that never won a game. I just love the idea of trying to to illuminate a story that otherwise wouldn't get illuminated. And I like the challenge that readers will open up the New York Times or click on the New York Times and see a story about girls basketball or horseshoes and think, well, I'm not interested in this. I've never heard of these people before. And I can still try to hook them in. And there's a there's a challenge there that I really do like that um, I'm gonna try to get people to read something that they didn't know they wanted to read. Branch mentioned horseshoes. I think this is the first time on the podcast that I've ever talked with a reporter who profiled the same man I've written about. Alan Francis is the greatest horseshoe pitcher who has ever lived. I profiled him for the Columbus Dispatch in 2007. Branch wrote about him for the New York Times three years later. We talk about those stories as well as my horseshoe follow-up of Francis's main challenger, which ran on SB Nation in 2012. Branch says in the introduction to the book that the hardest part of writing is not what to put in, it's what to leave out. It's a continual struggle that he has. Because I think anybody could write something if you have no space restrictions, you can just sort of ramble on forever. I've been known to do that. But you have to decide, well, that doesn't actually have a place in this. Um, And that's a tricky thing. Branch has been at the New York Times since 2005. He won the Pulitzer in 2013 and was a finalist in 2012 for his series of stories on a professional hockey player who overdosed on painkillers. 
Side Country is his third book. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Branch's work on the website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast.com. John, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here. Uh, your book, Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports, uh, went on sale on June 1st. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the book? Yeah, sure. Gladly. It's a uh, it's an anthology of 20-some of my favorite pieces from the New York Times that I've written over the last decade or so. Um, the term side country is a skiing term that means the uh, the outs- just outside the boundary of a ski area. You know, it's not the back country, but it's the side country, so it's accessible, um, but still a little wild. And that term came up uh, during a story I wrote about an avalanche called Snowfall. And as I was putting this collection together, it, it occurred to me that that's a pretty good little metaphor, I think, for the kinds of work that I like to do, too. Um, little out, little out of bounds, but not so wild that people can't relate to it. Yeah. What, why did you want to, to put together this collection of stories? Well, actually, it was the, uh, the idea of my editor at W.W. Norton who came to me and, and asked me if I would be interested in doing that. I thought it was a huge, huge um, treat and quite a compliment that he would think that I would have stories that would be worthy of, of a book collection. Um, and so it means a ton to me that they were willing to do that. It means a ton to me that these stories that you know mean a lot to me, um, but are mostly forgotten by people who weren't really directly involved with them, um, and, you know, these stories that are just nothing but a digital archive now at the New York Times, it means a lot to me that they are now going to be, or they are, you know, in printed form and will be, um, uh, taking a place on a bookshelf and bookshelves around everywhere. So that's a cool thing. I, I like the idea that these are going to live, um, a little bit longer lives, at least in, you know, hard form. Uh, I'm still old school enough to appreciate the, the paper and, and books and, uh, I'm glad that these will now have a place on, on bookshelves. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, though, that like journalism professors like myself aren't forgetting stories like Snowfall because I teach it and you were kind enough to actually talk to one of my classes um, a couple years ago about that. So uh, that that story is not being forgotten by me anyway. So, Well, thank you. Yeah, there are a few stories in here that I do get asked about from time to time. There are a few stories that nobody's ever asked me about. Um, so I'm glad to kind of resurrect them at least a little bit in, in whatever this counts for as public consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> I've written a few pieces uh, back when I was a reporter uh, back in my olden days um, uh, about non-mainstream sports. You know, the, a lot of the stuff that's that's in this piece as well. I, uh, I've written about horseshoe pitchers, uh, and we'll talk about that mm-hmm. here in a little bit. Um, and not one, but two, apparently. So, uh, but I've also written about girls basketball in Amish country uh, when I was writing for stuff for SB Nation. And I've written about running and little league baseball teams that couldn't win. Uh, so, so your book, in a lot of ways, reminds me of, of my own reporting that I've done. What draws you to those types of stories, the 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 sports stories that aren't like front and center, like that everybody's paying attention to? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. One, I just love the idea of trying to to illuminate a story that otherwise wouldn't get illuminated. Um, you know, 
as much as I've spent a lot of my career doing stories about mainstream sports and covering big events, and I've been a beat writer for all the professional leagues, um, you know, I realized that if I'm not the one writing those stories, somebody else probably is. And I like the idea that these are stories that probably aren't going to get uncovered, at least not in the same way, um, if I'm not the one to uncover them. So there's a little bit of a thrill of, of sort of feeling like I'm, I'm bringing something to the world that otherwise might not exist. And also, I like the challenge of it. Um, you know, if I'm a beat writer for a professional team, uh, I know that a certain number of my readers or our readers are going to gravitate toward the story simply because it's about this team. There's a, a built-in audience for it. They'll see the headline, and they'll start reading it, no matter how good or bad that story is. And I like the challenge that readers will open up the New York Times or click on the New York Times and see a story about girls basketball or horseshoes and think, well, I'm not interested in this. I've never heard of these people before. And I can still try to hook them in. And there's a, there's a challenge there that I really do like that um, I'm going to try to get people to read something that they didn't know they wanted to read. And I love it when I, they get to the end of the story and they email me or they pass it on to friends or they put it on Twitter and say, you may not think you like the story, but you guys should really check this out. That's like the greatest compliment you can get. Yeah, the first three stories that you have in the book uh, fall under part one, which is climbing and falling. And it's Snowfall, The Dawn Wall, uh, and Lost Brother, um, all obviously tied to mountains and, and, and mountain climbing and, and mountain jumping and, and, and skiing. Is that something that you're really, is that something that you do that you're really interested in? Uh, and so that's also something that you write about? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Colorado, so I am interested in it probably more than most, but it's also become sort of a genre of mine at the New York Times. You know, we don't have a climbing reporter or a skiing reporter necessarily. And so when these stories have come up, um, I started to do them. And now when they come up again, they say, call Branch. Um, but, you know, ask him if this is something we should be doing or if he wants to do. And so that's become kind of a genre of mine. When this book came, uh, you know, came to being a couple of years ago when Matt Weiland at Norton approached me about it. I think the idea initially was that we would do mostly adventure stories because it's, you know, I, I probably have more than 20 of them. And as we started to figure out all the pieces that would be part of this, um, we expanded that because I wanted to include ones that maybe weren't just an adventure, um, but also a little bit outside of the bounds. But I, I, excuse me, I certainly wanted to include stories that really meant a lot to me. And that's why we kind of went a little farther afield with this uh, notion of what side country is. But probably about half these stories, I guess you would classify as, as adventure stories. And the other half are probably just a little bit outside the mainstream of sports. I was going to ask you how, how I think you said um, in the introduction that you've written more than 2000 um, pieces for the New York times. Did I get that number right? Yeah, I think if you did, if you went into the archives and typed my name, there would probably be at least 2,000. There might be some repetition in there, but I, I've written a lot. I used to write, a, you know, used to have a lot of bylines. When you're a beat reporter, you get hundreds of them a year, um, you know, 300 or something a year. You know, you're writing just about every day. Nowadays, that has slowed a lot, much to the, uh, much to the chagrin of people like my mom who worry that I'm not doing okay at the New York Times because I don't have stories very often. Um, but yeah, it is something like 2,000. So what was it like when you decided, okay, I got to look through here and find out what I want to include? Um, what was that like? How did you, how did you yeah. ultimately decide what you wanted to put in the book? Uh, that's an interesting question. So I really just did it off the top of my head. Um, 
you know, to your point, there's no real way to go to the New York Times uh, website or our archives and type in John Branch's favorite stories. So I just pulled it off the top of my head and just literally started writing out a list of what are the stories that stick with me? Um, what are the stories that I tell people about that when I think about the my favorite works um, that I want to include in this? Some of them people know. Sometimes there are stories that people like you might teach in a class. Uh, which is a great honor always. And some of them are ones I thought, I just love this story, but nobody remembers it. And um, it means something to me. So I had a pretty big list, maybe 40 or 50 of those off the top of my head. And then I went back and started looking at them. And as you know, as a reporter, you never go back and read your old work. You know, much of my career as a beat writer, especially, you write a story and you hope you never see it again. Because when you see it again, it means an editor has questions. Um, and so there are times as a beat reporter, for example, you write a game story, you literally are, are sending it the second you type the last word. You don't even read it again because you're just on deadline and you're hoping that an editor at the, on the desk will catch anything you might've done wrong. Hopefully the next day you wake up and you start working on the next story and you don't go back and read these stories again. And so it was really interesting for me to take these 40 some stories that I probably had off the top of my head and start going back to read them. Um, some for the first time since I probably filed them. And in my head, um, sometimes I would read them and think, wow, I used to be really good at writing because <laughs> this is a much better story than anything I've written recently. And I start thinking that I'm, I'm getting worse as I get older. And sometimes I'd read the stories and be really disappointed because the memory in my head of the experience of reporting it or the emotion that I have thinking about it doesn't feel like it's matched by the, the story itself. And I'm disappointed in choices that I made either like in the structure of the story or in word choices or just why did I use that lead and what was I thinking that day um so some stories I said no nah, I'm not putting that in the book even though it might have been something that uh, my editor and I would have presumed would have been in the book and so I just kept calling them down I want to make sure that these 20 some stories are ones that I really like and um and and they mean something to me so it's that combination which one give me one uh, example in the book of a story that that you that just sprung to your head but is one of those that just nobody else remembered uh yeah it's probably uh don doan who is a man in a small michigan town um who wasn't famous for anything uh but he was a bowler and he bowled on league night every week for 30 some years, I think. And he was in his early sixties and finally bowled his first 300 game of his life on a, uh, on a cold winter's night a few years ago. And as everybody erupted in cheers, he turned around in the bowling alley and had a heart attack and died. Mm. And obviously I was there that night, but we saw a blurb about this uh, somewhere. And so I went to his memorial a few days later at the bowling alley and um, I love that story. It's a little short story about this, um, what seems to be a very common life and about a guy who had the most uncommon of experiences. I mean, the, the quote that sticks with me is his wife talking to the man's father um, that night at the memorial. I was sitting there and she said he was halfway to heaven when he hit the floor, wasn't he, dad? Um, I don't remember a lot of quotes that I've used, but that's one of them that I remember. That was an absolutely beautiful story. And I think when I read it, it was for the first time because uh, I'm probably one of those well, examples you. of people who, who had never read it before. What were, what were they like when you, when you showed up? Uh, did they know you were coming and, and what were their thoughts on, oh my gosh, it's New York Times reporters going to show up uh, to the memorial? Yeah, that, that's always a little strange. Um, 
so I had I remember I had contacted the the bowling alley owner who told me well we're having a, a memorial and I said great I'd love to come and you know in this profession you kind of invite yourself to places and don't really ask permission necessarily <laughs> you just kind of say great I'll, I'd like to come I'll, I'll, I'll try to be there you don't say is it okay do you want to check with people if it's okay um, and so I went and I, they were all very friendly I do remember the family was a little nervous about talking to me um, the the mother the wife. Um, you know, they had grown kids, a uh, grown son, but the, the wife of the man who died of Don Doan um, was not prepared and not really ready to talk to me. It was too soon. It was too emotional that night. And so I just hung around talking to other people and sort of capturing the, the scene, the really beautiful scene of, you know, the, of this group of men, for example, from the Michigan, Michigan Bowling Congress that showed up in their matching sport coats and, you know, presenting a ring to the family. Um, it was all very beautiful, but then toward the end of the night, um, the son came to me and said, my mom would like to talk to you. And so she and I sat down and talked. Um, so it, you just, you know, it's, it's what we do in journalism. You, you try to show up and you stick around as long as you can until people tell you to go away. And, um, I think w I'm pretty good at once I get in the room, people will appreciate that I'm there with some sincerity and, and just want to listen. And, um, I don't have some sort of um, you know, some sort of take, uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm trying to do right by the story and it's easier to, to express that or to get that, uh, through to people when you're there in the room. Cause I think they see it for themselves. And as opposed to me just calling and say, I'm a, I'm a guy from the New York times that, that I'm sure conjures images. Um, and so I try to knock those walls down as much as I can by getting people on the phone or getting them to a coffee shop or sometimes just showing up at their door. There's one story in here that I was like so excited to see. Um, and I guess I wasn't expecting it because when I saw it, I think I screamed and my wife was like, what's wrong with you? Um, and that <laughs> is um, your profile on Alan Francis, who is um, hands down the world's greatest horseshoe pitcher. And I think, as you mentioned in the note, probably the most dominant athlete in any sport in the world ever of all time. Um I profiled Alan for the Columbus Dispatch way back in 2007, um, right kind of when he started his run um, in horseshoe mm -hmm. pitching. And then I wrote about his biggest rival, uh, Brian Simmons, in 2012. Um, so right now I'm looking for a trilogy, a, a third horseshoe pitch story. <laughs> can, can you tell, uh, can you talk about Alan and, and why you wrote about him when you did? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I'd love to get into this with you. Um, I don't know how Alan Francis came up, but at the time, this is probably about 10 years ago, I was really writing a lot of stories kind of from the quirky edges of sports. Um, I hadn't really hit the genre of these disaster stories that I've started to do in the last few years that probably started with snowfall. Um, but so I was doing sports, like I went to the yo-yo world championships. I went to the um, lumberjack world championships in, in Wisconsin. These are all stories that I thought maybe I would love and put in this book and a couple of them. I'm like, ah, oh, rats. Uh, so, you know, rodeos, you know, anything that sort of felt a little off the beaten path and somehow stumbled across Alan Francis and who knows, maybe it was from your stories or some coverage I'd seen somewhere and thought, wow, this guy sounds remarkable. Um, he just keeps winning year after year after year. At that point he had won what 12 or 15 um, world championships. And so I thought I'd go profile him. And so that was just kind of a down and dirty, quick profile. Spent a couple days with him in Defiance and then traveled with him to a, a tournament and just wrote a, you know, 
not uncommon for me back in the day, but I don't know, a, a thousand word, 1200 word little profile. Now I'm writing some things that are thousands and thousands, 15,000 words at, at times. Um, but that was just kind of a down and dirty profile. And one that has always stuck with me just because he is the most dominant athlete I've ever, I've ever approached. Um, I just saw the other night, people were talking about Simone Biles, the uh, gymnast saying she's the most dominant athlete there is. <laughs> and it's all too. I can do not to, not just chime in and say, do you guys know about Alan Francis? <laughs> right. Right. I I'll never forget. I, um, uh, that whole story came about because I was at, we were at a Metro parks, uh, for a birthday party for my son who at the time was three. Um, and, uh, they had horseshoe pitch pits there and nobody ever used them. And so the whole story was going to be why did nobody pitches horseshoes anymore? And as I started researching it, I came upon, um, some clubs in Columbus. And then I researched more and found the, uh, the world horseshoe pitching championships, uh, and then lo and behold, I look at the stats and this guy from Ohio is at the top of the board every year. And so that's how the whole thing came about. It was going to be about, about why nobody pitches horseshoes anymore. Isn't that amazing? People ask me all the time, and I'm sure they ask you all the time, where do your stories come from? And they just tend to come from something really organic and instant just like that. I also wrote about Brian Simmons, who is who is also in your story on Alan Francis, right? I wrote about him for SB Nation. Yep. Right when long form, right when, right when Glenn Stout um, started the long form page on SB Nation, I, w- I wrote about him uh, and how he was literally, I, he might still be the only person who's beaten Allen in the last 30 years. That, that might be true. And I will tell you, I love that story. I remember when it came out. Um, there are stories of mine that I've done where you recognize as you're reporting a story that there's another angle here that would be really good if I had the time and the wherewithal. And if I could convince um, my editors to like, Oh, I'm not just going to spend a couple of days doing Alan Francis, but now I'm going to go chase another guy up to Vermont. Um, Brian Simmons is fascinating. And, and you, you talk about it in your story about how these guys could not be more different. Alan Francis is the straight and narrow um, guy that doesn't seem to have, uh, you know, a, a big personality, just kind of a vanilla. And I think by his own account, um, Brian Simmons is the opposite of that. And he's gone through all sorts of health issues, but he looks disheveled. He's a little kind of grumpier. He worked at a gas station. Um, he was fascinating. And it just wasn't my story at the time. Yeah, Alan was my story. And there have been times, and, and then you came along and just nailed it, loved it. Um, there have been times where I've done stories and thought, I wish I could do this in a fuller, maybe different way. And I think early in my career, and that was, you know, Alan Francis, that story was pretty early where I basically just convinced them to let me do this. And I didn't maybe have the guts or the, uh, the ambition or whatever to say, actually, let me go spend a couple more weeks on a horseshoe story. <laughs> um, but there have been times where I've done that before and where I've come across a story and written it and kind of said, there's more there. And I just didn't, yeah, I wish I could have done something a little bit different. And in some cases I've been lucky enough to go back and kind of redo a story um, in a fuller way. Uh, so it's funny that you mentioned the Brian Simmons thing, because in the back of my head, I knew when I was filing Alan Francis, there's a great story about Brian Simmons. <laughs> Fortunately, well, Matt came along and told I'm it. Gl- I got it first. You know, I did not know if that story was actually going to happen because I could not get hold of a Brian before the world championship. And so I didn't mm. meet him until in Knoxville. And I just walked up to him and said, um, I want to write a big story about you, like literally at the <laughs> tournament. And he's like, okay. 
<laughs> so yeah, and that, that's sometimes what it takes, right? You have to show up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think more and more we try to like text people or email people or go through their agent or whatever and kind of hit these walls. And sometimes you just have to say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to go straight to this person or I'm just going to show up. I dare you to tell me no to my face. That's kind of the the, uh, the mantra of journalists. One thing I loved about um, reading uh, the book as well is, is getting to read Snowfall in book form. And I don't know if because that's because <laughs> I'm old or whatever, um, but to read it in book form and not stare at it on a computer screen, right? I mean, you lose the multimedia stuff, which is which mm-hmm. that piece really set the bar for mm-hmm. multimedia works um, and, and term and, and you know what we can do with stories now. Um, but in so many ways, it was like I don't know. It, it just felt right in book form. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. What well, what was it like for you to look at that story, which is is, is again nine years old now? Um, what was it like for you to look at that story and to think about it again? Yeah, that's one of the stories I I am somewhat familiar with because people <laughs> um, do teach it from time to time, and so I get asked about it. So that's one of those that I've at least skimmed through uh, to make sure I can talk about it intelligently. Uh, but it, it it is interesting because Norton wanted it to be part of this book, and I think it would. Certainly, it's the piece I'm best known for, um, so it should be part of this book. But as you say, most people have experienced it on a computer with this uh, this great visual um, interactive graphics and photos and so on. And so we are going to see if it holds up as a text, um, just as words only. I'd like to think it does. It's interesting because when we did that... Um, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not the text would change because of the uh, visuals. And it didn't, except for in one way, and that was I knew since there were such great visuals, they were kind of a crutch. I wouldn't have to explain certain things. I, um, I dared to put more characters in there because I knew we'd have like a little glossary of characters. I didn't change that for this book. So I don't know if people read it and be like, there's way too many people in this, or I can't keep track of what we're talking about here. Um, but basically I said, no, forget it. Let's just see if we can stick it in there as a text. When you wrote that piece, did you make any other changes because you knew that there were um, other multimedia elements? I'm thinking about like the lines that everybody took down the mountain, right? Mm-hmm. The way they skied. Was that, I mean, what, what other yeah. uh, thoughts was going through your mind when you were writing that? Yeah. So as I was reporting it and I got to the point in the reporting where I thought I want to hear everybody's voice in this story. Um, You know, most stories we kind of get to a point as a reporter where we say, okay, I think I've talked to enough people, but I got to a point where I thought, you know what, I'm going to see if I can track down every single person. And I did. And I didn't want to rank their voices. They all had their, their perspectives, their, their experience, and none was more or less important than anybody else's. And so I worked hard on that story to get everybody's voice in there at least to some degree. Now, would I have done that if it was text only? Maybe not. I knew I had, again, sort of a glossary of little mug shots and, you know, little quick bios of who these people were that people could refer to as they're reading this, thinking, no, wait, which Tim is this? Um, so that's now gone. And to your point about the, um, the, the routes that they all took down the mountain. Yeah, those were, that was one of the big multimedia graphics in there um, because I had done the reporting to be able to tell you who went first and where they went on the mountain. We could map it all out. You know, if you just read through it, I hope you just don't realize you're missing that. Um, 
you know i think people who who know snowfall well might say wait this was i like this because or, uh, I'm, I'm missing the visual element because i thought that was really helpful i'm really proud that all the elements in snowfall are journalistic elements that help tell the story better they're not just there to look pretty um so if you take those out is it a lesser thing some people might say so i'm hoping people who have not read it for a while or who will experience it just as a simple text will say you know what that holds up pretty well I don't know the answer. Yeah, I'm probably a bad one to ask that question too because I've read it <laughs> so many times because I teach it, uh, and and so I'm yeah. probably a bad one because uh, uh, I feel like I knew it pretty well. Um, there's one series in here that I don't think I read um, when it came out, and I'm glad it's in here because I think it's really really good. And that is your um, series on the Lady Jaguars. Um, can you tell me about uh, that series? Yeah, so the Lady Jaguars are a basketball team, a high school basketball team, um, at a reform school in Tennessee. There's a school in a in a small town in Tennessee called Huntington, Tennessee, and um, between Memphis and Nashville. And <clears throat> the court has created the school for kids that have basically been kicked out of other schools, and they've been kicked out either because of truancy, um, they just don't show up, or they've had run-ins with trouble, and. Before, this is kind of a safety net, this place. And so before they get kicked out of the system altogether, they go to Carroll Academy. And most of the kids that go there are boys. There's about 100 kids there at any one time. And they're there for anywhere from a few months to maybe a school year. But there's also usually 12 or 15 girls. And the girls are basically told, you're going to be part of this basketball team. You know, the only sport we have here at Carroll Academy is basketball. And so the girls, we need girls on a basketball team. And so most of these girls have never played basketball or have not been part of teams and they don't do very well as a basketball team. And when I heard about them um, seven or eight, nine years ago, they had at that point lost 200 and some games in a row. And I'm sure it was the longest streak, losing streak in the country of, of any sport. Uh, they ended up losing, I think 320 some before they won a couple of years ago for the first time in 15 years. Um, but those stories, and I'm glad you brought that up because these stories mean probably more to me than any, any other. Um, I spent part of a, a season uh, with these nine girls on this particular team that year and went home with them and learned about their backstories and spent a lot of time with their parents. In some cases, lovely, earnest people who just could not pull themselves up, um, were either caught in throes of addiction, um, in some cases, homelessness in a lot of cases, joblessness. And these kids were just given such, so few breaks in life that they were at the school, I, I came to believe really through little fault of their own. Um, and so this is a series of stories I wrote about the girls mostly at the school um, in the broader context of these lives where they are just struggling to, to get through. Uh, they were just handed a, a rough set of cards. And, um, yeah, those stories mean as much to me as anything, just because I, I think they illuminate um, a lot of problems with our country, but also because they're about kids. And I'm a sucker for kids stories. And um, uh, yeah, I, I think about that story as much as I think of, of any that I've ever done. Yeah, I, as I'm reading, as, as I've read it, I, I, I get the sense that the reporting could not have been easy, right? Because you're dealing with, first of all, you're dealing with minors um, who... Um, have been going through incredibly difficult times in their lives, who have parents who have gone through incredibly difficult times in their lives, um, and yet they still gave you significant access. Um, yeah. So I, I, how, how did the, the lawyers, the lawyers at both the Times and W.W. W. Norton were a little nervous about all this. How, yes. how, 
how did how did that happen? Because you that doesn't that doesn't necessarily that doesn't happen often. Often no, enough. No, and how how it happened is really um, the director of the school is Randy Hatch. Um, was a wonderful man. He's still the director, just now retiring from there, and he coached the team for a number of years. He jokes about how he's the worst basketball coach in history. Um, and the judge there is a man named Larry Logan, who basically assigns these kids. And I think they recognized that this was an important story to tell. And they run this place and basically said, kids, you're talking to this kid, this guy from the New York Times. They, they gave me access. Um, the parents, you know, are a little bit different, but, you know, we didn't name last names, for example. We were a little bit aware of, of the sensitivities of some of these things. But any parent I was writing about, I was talking to, mm-hmm. and they knew who I was, and you know they knew what I was up to, and I gave them every chance to to respond to some of the things that uh, maybe their kids had said about them, about things that were happening at home. Um, but yeah, that was a tricky one because they're all very sensitive topics. You don't want people to look bad, especially people who um, are going through really difficult challenges in their lives, often through no fault of their own necessarily. And um, I wanted to be very sensitive to to not being judgmental. And, and, and certainly when you have a, a reporter from the New York Times, again, with whatever that means to people, when you show up in a small town in, say, Tennessee, you don't want to be that outsider pointing a, a telescope at people and mocking them or being insensitive to what they're going through or what their worlds are like. Um, I think I'm pretty good about diving into small towns and capturing with some degree of fairness um, and lack of, of judgment. Um, what people are going through. I think that's kind of my wheelhouse. And so these stories are probably the best example of that. Did you stay in touch with any of the girls and kind of know how they're doing, you know, now, which is I think nine yeah. years later? Yeah, it's interesting because I wrote the series of stories and then I went back a year later to kind of update, like here's where they are a few of them a year later. Um, I, I am in touch with probably half of them. I've been trying to track them down actually before this book came out. Um, most of them are still in that area. Uh, most of them have babies. Most of them are living very much an echo of their parents' lives, um, unfortunately, which is kind of what the theme of the story was. And they, you know, Randy Hatch, again, one of the few quotes I can remember is Randy Hatch, the director, saying uh, they see, they can't see past the tree line. And that sticks with me. Um, these kids are really struggling to move out of their small little towns and not just take fast food jobs and not just have babies and basically do a lot of uh, repeating of what their parents went through in raising them. Um, but I am in touch with probably half of them and I can report that most of the ones I'm in touch with seem to be doing pretty well. I've been talking with John Branch. His book, Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports is a collection of some of his sports stories from the New York Times. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll have more with John talking about writing and reporting and how he got into newspapers. We'll be back in one minute. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the digital journalism and sports media programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. 
Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullos. I'm talking with John Branch, a sports writer at the New York Times and the author of Side Country, a collection of his pieces from the Times. The book is on sale now. You mentioned uh, in the introduction that the hardest part of writing is uh, not what you put in, but what you leave out of the story. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, writing is not a lot of fun. I, I always think if somebody tells me that they love writing, I think you don't do it as a career. Because I don't know anybody who does it as a career that really appreciates and loves writing the process itself. And I think the hardest part of it is is knowing what to leave out. Because I think anybody could write something if you have no space restrictions. You can just sort of ramble on forever. And I've been known to do that. Um, but you have to decide, well, that doesn't actually have a place in this. Um, and that's a tricky thing. I'm working on a story right now, which I know is going to be four times longer than I'll get away with publishing. And I'm writing it going, most of this is going to go away. And I don't know what it is, what it is yet. Um, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what to take back out and, and make those, the stuff you put that you leave in, you know, it illuminates it. It, 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 it rises up then, you know, because if you're going to take out 75% of what you first put in that 25% that you have left better be pretty good. You say you have a story that you're going to, you're working on right now. That's probably four times longer than, than it should be. What's your process like when you, when you've got a piece uh, that you're working on, you're, I mean, yeah. obviously you've done all the reporting. Uh, so, so you sit down, um, what's that process like in terms of, uh, of getting things started and then like getting it to where it needs to be? Yeah. I would love to tell you that I've got this all worked out. Like I have a process that this is how you do stories and it's just not that way. It depends on the story. Um, you know, short stories I can usually spit out pretty quickly. Longer stories, more and more, I start to write them by hand. For some reason, I enjoy writing by hand to at least get the ball rolling a little bit. I think my brain just works differently as I'm writing as opposed to a blank screen and typing. And so I, it's just more freeing. And so I will usually have a legal pad of five or six pages of like, okay, here's the lead and here's kind of where the nut goes. And then I think I want a section here about this and write down a few notes that occur to me. And then the, I think the second section will be this. And I kind of outline it on, on paper. Um, I don't always wait until the reporting's over to write anymore. I used to, but more and more I start to write because then it exposes where my holes are. And I don't know if that's a great idea or not, but it's what I've started to do more recently. And I'm doing with this piece. I know I have a few people I need to talk to still, but I'm going to write the story at least in a pretty rough form. And as I'm writing the story, I'm literally writing down questions in the margin going, okay, I know when I talk to this person, I need to ask about this because I just don't have enough on this. Um, and I need to, I need to learn more. Um, but I used to be the type where I would say, and I think it was a Rick Riley thing, you know, do all the reporting before you sit down to write. And I've, I just think every story is a little different. And, and sometimes when you write a big story, a long story, 
I can't wrap my head around the entire thing. And so I just kind of need to start writing it to sort of see where it's going, what the theme is. You just kind of have to write it out a little bit. It's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You kind of have to start putting around the, putting the edges together. And then you go, okay, here's where I'm at now. And, and let's regroup. I think everybody does it differently. I'm, I am the type of person who's constantly reporting and writing at the same time. I think Elon Green was on the show when he was talking about his book, Last Call, and he said, literally, he's still reporting on the day he writes the last <laughs> words um, of anything. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's uh, it's in, it's different for everyone. Um, yeah. When you were looking at the pieces to try to put, the, the, thinking about putting in the book, did you see any, uh, were there any stories where when you looked at it, you're like, I wish I had left something out of that story? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm sure there is. I mean, there. it's funny. There are stories, and I won't tell you which ones because then you'll go find them, but there are stories where I just can't believe I wrote a certain way um, or just use a phrase. I, I hate cliches. I hate cliches. And I try to tell myself I don't use cliches, and every once in a while I'm like, really? I did that. Did an editor? That must have been an editor put that in. How did I miss that? That's um, what I. That's what I always blame my bad stories on. <laughs> it, yeah. It's a lie, but yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, but there, there's certainly. I, you know, as I get older, I'm. Um, you know, our tastes change, right? And so it's not unlike probably. I suppose like a musician who goes back and listens to a song from ten years ago. You know, or from the '80s, going, "Why did I put so much keyboard in there?" Yeah. You know, <laughs> that was a bad idea. Um, you know, why'd I, why'd I put cowbell? Uh, you know, that, that's not going to age well. <laughs> and so there are, there are a few of those that I kind of wish, but because it's an anthology, I can't go back and rewrite them. Right. I would, you know, it was all I could do not to be like, Oh, can I just change that sentence? But <laughs> I, I can't do that. I, I, I should take back like the whole blaming it on the editors because I don't think we thank <laughs> editors enough for helping us. And you actually make this point and your acknowledgements uh, for the book. You thank several editors um, who you've worked with, um, you know, they, they really do t help take our work to the, to the next level. Um, can you talk about the editors who you've worked with and the impact they've had on, on your stories? Yeah. I mean, I've been blessed that I've had people that I work for really at every stop, but these stories are all from the New York times, um, that let me do whatever it is that I do. And we've been talking here for a while and I'm, I'm sure people are still like, so what kind of stories are we talking about? I, I have trouble explaining what it is that I do to my friends and um, the editors are, you know, allow me to kind of keep going down these weird little rabbit holes and explore things that they're like, you're, you want to do a story about what? Um, Rubik's cubes for the sports section. Hmm, okay. Okay. You want to go spend a year with a basketball team in Tennessee? what um uh, but they trust me and i and i'm thankful for that and i recognize how lucky i am and that started you know tom jolly was the sports editor at the new york times when he who hired me and he recognized pretty quickly i think that you know even though i was a beat writer for the giants those first few years i think he liked my feature work and liked that i thought about things a little bit differently and so he said you're free, go do your thing. And that's where it started. And then Joe Sexton took his place. And Joe Sexton was the one who came to me twice in the span of about a year. First to say, do you, you remember a few weeks ago when Derek Bogard, the hockey player died? Um, I think there's something more there that ended up being a series of stories and later a book about Derek Bogard, the hockey enforcer. And then a year later said, do you, did you hear about that avalanche in Washington a couple of weeks ago? I think there's something more there. And that's, I mean, what, what greater honor could you have than an editor who says, just go find it, just go. I'm not going to dictate what it is. I don't know what you're looking for, but just go. And that's, 
the greatest gift an editor can give a reporter. And Jason Stallman, and then in the last few years, Randy Archibald, both have con have continued that. Um, Jason was my editor for most of these stories. And so he and I were in cahoots a lot on a lot of stories. He has very fresh ideas on, on stories. And I think liked the idea that the New York Times sports section was a place that readers would be like, I can't believe you guys did that. Or I would not have expected that. We wanted to surprise readers. And um, I'm glad to be the source of some of those surprises. Yeah. And it's all thanks to editors who trust me. Uh, you mentioned the Rubik's Cube story, um, and I remember distinctly that when that story came out, I tweeted that it was go no doubt going to be in best American sports writing, and you said, <laughs> no, well, probably not. It was. Am I correct? <laughs> it was, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd just um, like to take some credit for that. So, <laughs> well, th Thank you. If you had, yeah. Maybe Glenn Stout saw my tweets. I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah, perhaps. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Um, because that, that again, it was a story that I kind of had to say, yeah, my, my kid was involved in it. You know, we talk about where story ideas come from. My kid was involved in it. And I had been going to these competitions for a year or two. And I just thought they were lovely and wonderful and quirky. And most of these competitions for these kids that are trying to solve Rubik's Cubes in a matter of seconds involve hundreds of kids um, most of them teenage boys, a lot of them like my son, who a little bit quirky, struggle to find friends. Um, you go to these places and you think these kids are all part of a tribe, but they have each other here. And you see them working together and sitting together, doing their cubes, you know, at a mile a minute. And it's like they found people who understand them. And so I thought it was a fascinating story. Is it a sports story? Probably not. Um, but again, the Times said, yeah, go report it. And if we decide it's not for sports, we'll send it over to the culture desk or national desk or something, you know, just write it. And we, you know, we'll figure out where it goes later, which is lovely, a great honor. And so I did that. And then when it came back, it's one of the stories that, that really changed from the first edit, from the first take to the end, simply because editors loved it, but said, we want more of you and your son. And I've always been loath to insert myself into stories. Um, but they said the story's best when it's personal, uh, in this case. And so I infused it with more of me and my son and, um, I'm glad it, it resonated with people. You mentioned, you mentioned, and I think in the introduction of the book that, that you actually didn't start out in journalism. You, you started out working in retail, uh, I think in your twenties. Um, how did you end up making that transition and moving into journalism? What happened? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I was in retail. I got a degree in business from the University of Colorado and I fell into the retail world and I was working as a, as an assistant buyer at a department store, um, for a couple of years and then worked on the floor at a, at a department store as a department manager. So I can tell you all about towels and thread counts and, uh, wedding registries and housewares. That's, that was my department. And then I didn't love that. And so a couple of my friends had gone off to Costco. At, it was price club at the time, but gone off to Costco to work. And they're like, John, you should come check this place out. I think you'd like it. And I loved that it was casual and there were forklifts and it was busy and fun and different. And it was pretty new. Uh, the concept was pretty new at the time. And so I worked at Costco for about six years and had a great time, but I got to probably 28 or 29 and kind of said, is this what I'm going to do the rest of my life? Because I'm about to feel like I'm not sure I could leave. I was, I was rising up through, um, high enough that it was going to be hard to leave in terms of um, me having a small family 
and the amount of money I was about to make. And so I kind of freaked out and had my midlife crisis and said, I've always wanted to be a journalist. You know, I feel like uh, the elf in, in uh, the uh, Christmas movie. You know, I, I don't want to be an elf. I want to be a dentist. And so I uh, decided I wanted to go try my hand at journalism. And my wife, um, God bless her, said, go back to school. We'll figure it out. And I said, we might be moving to Iowa to cover high school football. I don't know where this is going to go. And um, with her blessing, I went back to school and got a graduate degree in, in journalism. And I had never written for a student paper. I had never published anything. Um, so it was kind of a lark. Looking back on it, I'm not sure I'd have the guts to do it again, but I'm I'm glad it worked out. And I always kind of half joke that if things don't work out for me, I think I can get a job back at Costco. Again. <laughs> did you, uh, did you write ever uh, like as, as a youngster uh, is writing and reading something you enjoyed doing too, or no? <laughs> not, not particularly. Uh, my mother was an English teacher. So there was probably that. And I was always decent at it. I was a, I was a huge um, devourer of newspapers though. I loved the morning paper. Uh, you know, that was in the era, I'm old enough that it was in the era where that's where you got your sports news. That's where you looked at the standings. That's where you looked at the box scores. You know, I, I can still tell you, um, batting orders from teams back in the early eighties more than I could ever guess at one now. Um, and so that it was a love of that. And so when I went back to it, I thought, I think I know how they do this. And I think it would be a lot of fun. Like you tell me you get to go in the locker rooms, you get to go to these games, get to travel around. That sounds like a pretty good life. And I think I could write like this, I think. I, I had no idea, but um, I was willing to try it out. And my wife um, was willing to let me try it. Well, I could tell you the starting lineup of the 1984 Chicago Cubs, including the starting rotation, thanks to the local newspaper from when I was eight years old, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of people of, of our generation. I'm older than you are, but um, of our generation that can do the same thing. You know, we had those those box scores memorized and we knew how to read them. Right. We knew what that meant and kind of define the little um, little hidden mysteries inside the box scores, the little quirks and abbreviations that all that all made sense. And now we have so many statistics in baseball that I look at things. And I'm like, what are we talking about? Um, yeah, it's kind of left me behind a little bit. So maybe that's why I go to these other stories. Yeah. The back of baseball cards don't look like they used to. So. No, that's a drag. <laughs> well, John, Side Country Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports is on sale now. Uh, thanks for putting this book together, and thanks for coming on the show to talk about it. Matt, it was a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. I've been talking with John Branch, a sports writer at the New York Times and the author of three books. His most recent book is Side Country. Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports. It's on sale now. As usual, I've linked to all of the stories that we talked about on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible 
by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.